0: Hello, and welcome to The Learner Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Paul LeBlanc, president of Southern New Hampshire University, SNHU, a university you've either heard a lot about or you've heard absolutely nothing. LeBlanc's mission is to transform lives at scale. And to do that, he has redesigned SNHU by upending many of the core tenets of higher education, He has 4,000 students on campus and 180,000 online. He's developed a competency-based program because he thinks the credit hour, the one on which most of higher ed is predicated, is nonsense. That's because it does not reflect what a person knows. You can learn a lot in an hour and nothing in a year, and it perpetuates inequities. When you don't have resources like a car or you have two kids, everything takes longer. Paul wrote a book called Students First, which is about how you put students at the center of the education experience. By doing things like getting rid of the credit hour, making education affordable, and working hard to create a sense of belonging for all students. But while he was working on that book, he decided to write another one called Broken, How Our Social Systems Are Failing Us and How We Can Fix Them. About why healthcare, criminal justice, and education, systems aimed at helping humans, so often dehumanize them and the people they employ.
1: No one is lifted out of poverty. No one is lifted out of ignorance. No one is lifted out of ill health and then cites a system or a platform or a technology. What they always cite is a person. So you have to build systems, policies, and platforms that create the space for the relational.
0: In our conversation, we talk about how to change that, drawing heavily from his own experiences at SNHU, as well as the stories of entrepreneurs from business, tech, and healthcare. We talk a lot about the power of love, and about the difference between belonging and mattering, about the power of storytelling, and why competency-based education is finally taking hold. We discuss a massive $20 million project SNHU has embarked on with Google to better identify skills students have and how they could be given credit for it. In this conversation, Paul gets granular and personal and confessional. He's honest about what he's achieved and why he's so excited for the next generation of leadership to fill in and take SNHU forward. Paul's ideas go way beyond education and really get at how much support most humans need and how we can design big, unwieldy and bureaucratic institutions to offer that. I hope you enjoy the episode. Paul LeBlanc, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So I've been reading both of your books and in both of them, Broken and Students First, you paint a fairly bleak picture of the system we have to serve post-secondary students. The United States fails 45% of students inflicts massive debt, forces conformity to a certain deductive linear reasoning mode, instills anxiety and perpetuates inequities. And I think the answer you come up with is love. Humans need it, systems lack it, and society demands it. But systems at scale aren't doing that. It's not delivering that. So what does love look like to you in the institution you run, which has thousands of residential students and 180,000 online students?
1: It's rooted solipsistically in my own experience. You know, I was a first gen immigrant kid who had access to high quality, affordable education, right? And so I'm using love to really describe do I feel like I matter to the system? Is, are my interactions such that I feel seen? You know, we sometimes will have students come to us from another institution, especially if it's a big online scaled institution, and they'll say, I felt like I was a number. Like no one actually knew who I was. So we start with mattering. Secondly, does the institution lift my sights? You know, the first chapter of my new book is is mattering. And the second one is about aspiration. Does it help me? Does it fuel me to dream bigger dreams for myself? So when we think about other systems like K-12, do our students, do our children who move through a system start to believe in themselves? Do they start to open up their horizons? Do they start to dream... Bigger dreams. And I don't mean a sense of belonging. We often confuse mattering with belonging. Mattering means that you know me, right? We all had like this occasionally you meet somebody and like it's a flashback. God, they really get me. Like I really connected. And what we usually mean is this person sort of sees me in a, in a richer way than a lot of people do. So that kind of multidimensionality. We talk about customer segmentation. We want simple, repeatable processes because that's what big technology systems crave, But in fact, human beings are messy. They're multidimensional. And can we build organizations that see that multidimensionality and embrace it? I mean, I felt loved when I went through my system. And that wasn't like I thought, oh, Framingham State University loves me. I don't mean that. What I mean is that when I was on that campus, there were people there that cared about me, that knew me, and it mattered to them that I was walking into their classroom. It mattered to them that I was walking into their office. They took active sponsorship of me. Helen Heinemann, who was a professor of mine and went on to become the president of the university, said to me, you know, where are you going to graduate school? And I thought, I'm lucky to get through undergraduate. Like, took me by the scuff of my neck and said, we are going to talk about this. No one is lifted out of poverty. No one is lifted out of ignorance. No one is lifted out of ill health and then cites a system or a platform or a technology. What they always cite is a person. So you have to build systems, policies, and platforms that create the space for the relational. And that's really the central argument of the book. And the entrepreneurs, the innovators that I was meeting, I think what they all are doing is flipping the script and saying, let's build social systems of care that begin with the question what are the important relationships? And then hold that space sacred and then automate the hell out of everything else. I just met with 200 of our managers and supervisors, and we were talking about this. And I, I have a bet. My bet is that our caregivers are spending huge parts of their day doing stuff that satisfies our systems, but has nothing to do with their students in that relationship. And every head nodded. I was like, we've got to get that out. We've got to get that off their plates.
0: I'd love to sort of explore this difference a tiny bit between belonging and mattering. Because in Students First, you talk a lot about the importance of belonging. And I watched your thinking evolve when you got to Broken into mattering. And just explain a tiny bit more about that difference. And also then I'm going to add in one more fold in service, because I wonder if what you're talking about isn't demanding that every teacher love their student, because that's a big ask. But perhaps we're asking more of service, or are we asking more on the mattering and some of the belonging? Pick that apart a little bit.
1: I, like so many people, have always thought that one of the secrets of student persistence and growth is the sense that they belong. And I think there's something to that, right? We know, for example, that students who are in clubs who are part of student government, they persist at better rates, generally speaking. But you and I belong to lots of things that I'm not sure we would say we also matter to those organizations. So professional memberships, I belong to those. I value being in that community of like-minded people who have an interest in X, Y, or Z. I read the journal that I get with my subscription, but I don't know that I matter very much to them outside of my annual subscription fee. So it's Greg Elias at Brown University who helped me understand. Mattering is a different order of magnitude that has the following components that you see me. So I matter to you in the ways we talked about a moment ago, you invest in me. So it's one thing to be seen, but it's another to feel like, oh, this is actually invested in me. And then the third, Greg would say, is that we give you agency. We give you the space to shape our engagement. In other words, it's in relationship. He doesn't talk about this notion of thirdness um, that Jessica Benjamin, the noted NYU psychologist does, but Jessica you know, would say that transformation happens when two parties can imagine kind of a third state in which they are both invested. And she works with Palestinian and Israelis, really hard stuff, but she would say a teacher and a student. In that relational space, we imagine a third state, a state of thirdness. And I think we have nice examples. If you take a look at high impact practices in undergraduate education, a really wonderful example is undergraduate research, where an undergraduate student and a professor are working together on a research project Oftentimes, you know, the student is cited as an author in the study or the paper that gets published, but they're working together on a third thing. It's not about the student becoming more learned; It is about the two of us learning together for a third state.
0: At SNHU, students are taking classes when they can, how they want, and in their time frame, which is incredibly powerful. But how do you make them feel they're part of a community? How do you create that sense of mattering when students are mostly learning on their own?
1: we really build this through the relationship with the academic advisor. If I'm your advisor, 80% of that time is really being almost a life coach. Because as an online student with us, it can feel isolated. We are not in a traditional class with everybody where you start to get that kind of chemistry of, oh, I saw you in my last class, right? So you're going from class to class to class, but it's asynchronous. So you're doing it when you can. So that advisor plays this critical role of making you feel like you have someone who is at your side, who's walking the journey with you. They're checking in on you. They're getting you resources when you need it. But they also know when work is terrible, when your kid is troubled, when your spouse is being a jerk, <laughs> when like, whatever it is that's getting in the way. They know it's in that relationship that you get the sense of it does matter to somebody. So remember what I said, no one cites a policy. No one cites a system. What our students talk about, and I get these communications all the time. I just want you to know about my advisor, Michelle. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be walking across the platform this weekend for my diploma. That's really powerful stuff. The most emotional moments at graduation when thousands of people fly to Manchester, New Hampshire to walk across the stage is the reunion, first time connection of a student advisor who know each other intimately, but have never met before physically. It's one of the most moving things. And we measure every aspect of our student life cycle, like every aspect of the, the experience. And we use net promoter scores for each. Our highest net promoter scores are for the relationship with advisors. And that's how we get scale, but also a sense of my personal experience. My personal experience is built on a relationship. Now, I'd like to think Everything else is equally embracing and warm. But the reality is, if you enroll with us, you're going to go from course to course to course, instructor to instructor to instructor. But the one person who stays with you through that journey is your advisor.
0: I tell my kids, you can't form real relationships online. That can be a an add-on, that can be an amplifier, but like you got to put in the the real stuff. And I think what I'm hearing you say, if I'm listening, is you think you can. You can build that relationship online.
1: Absolutely. And it's challenging. And it's not what you probably see or observe with most of our kids, which is a very superficial kind of skating over that confuses likes with relationship. A like is not a relationship, right? The heart of relationship building is two things. One is time. You can't shortchange time. So quick hit superficials, retweets, likes, thumbs up, thumbs down. That's not that's not time in relationship. And the other is that ability to sort of build trust through the sharing of vulnerability, the sharing of stories, that sense of understanding. Those are the things that our advisors do. And we deploy technology very powerfully and a lot of data and a very powerful CRM not to supplant the human, but actually to amplify and make it more powerful and productive. And what I mean by productive in this case is that we don't want to wait till a student is struggling to reach out and have that conversation, right? So when advisors come in and log in, they will often see how one of their students has performed on an exam, even before the student may have opened up their grades to see how they did. And if that student has not performed well, they're not waiting. That's a phone call. And the difference is now, Hey, Jenny, I was just sort of going through the course, et cetera, et cetera. And I noticed, like, you seemed like they really sort of struggled on your exam yesterday. What was all? Like, that's not like you. And you say, Oh my God, work has been crazy. Plus, my kid was homesick. Everything went to hell. I'll make it up and do some extra credit. Don't worry about it. I'm good. And that's like, Oh, great. Just want to make sure if there's anything I can get you, that's a quick call. But the call might instead be, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm worn out. Work's going really terribly these days. Maybe I should just maybe should I just stop out for a while? Maybe I need to take a break. And what we know, by the way, is when students stop out, even for a short time, the likelihood of their coming back is increasingly low. Like, we've got to get you back quickly. So maybe in that moment where I could say, hey, Jenny, let's talk about that. Like, did you get any to use the tutoring? No, I didn't even think of it. Oh my God, well, let me, let me set you up because you will just have an easier time with it. And then I start to build your confidence and, and sort of, okay, I'm good, I'm good, right? And it's those moments of sticking with it that I think, those are the powerful interactions. It's really, again, thinking about deploying technology and data, which we do. We measure everything. We know when you last logging in, we do predictive analytics. We have a sense of how you're likely to perform or monitoring every section of every class 24-7, but using that so that when you and I are in conversation, I don't have to spend the first 15 minutes asking you a bunch of questions trying to figure out what I should know because the system tells me what I need to know, and then I can jump in and do the productive work.
0: How many life coaches do you have?
1: Oh, uh, I'd have to look, but it's hundreds, maybe over a thousand now. And we have been lowering the caseload, if I can use that phrase, of how many students an advisor has to work with, because what we're seeing is real challenges in persistence right now. And you see this at every level. You see this in K-12, you see this on presidential campuses. And we're certainly seeing it with our non-traditional students We serve a lot of students of color, 30,000 students of color, BIPOC students. And again, if you take a look at the data, they were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. We do a lot of B2B work now, so we're working with a lot of employers. Um, They're often using tuition benefits for their frontline employees as both an attraction retention strategy as well as an upskilling strategy. But what we see with those students is a greater likelihood that they never had college. They never tried college. And we know that there is a correlation between number of credits you bring with you and your likelihood of success. They have track record. They kind of know what it means to be in classes. They know what it means to be in a term, right? They've demonstrated some success at it. When we have a student comes in with no credits, has never had the opportunity to try college, what we find is it's a heavier lift than more hand-holding in the beginning. They tend to overestimate how much time they have, and underestimate how much work is going to be required. So that's a critical mismatch, right? So we have to spend a lot more time and their attrition rates are higher. And we used to be about 85% of our students had credits coming in. It's down to 64% of our students have credits coming in. So you can see the greater challenge. Yeah. So we have, you know, a typical advisor caseload and scaled online would be about 300. And we brought our caseloads down to under 200 you know, what are we doing? We're trying to make more time for our advisors to be with fewer students.
0: And what's some other feedback that you're getting from those advisors about the experience? What, what else is the data telling you about where we are right now, kind of in this moment post-pandemic with this particularly vulnerable and hard-hit
1: population? For our students from marginalized communities, however you want to define that, whether these are communities of color, LGBTQ students, for example, Many of them seem to be suffering almost a kind of trauma. If you think about the last two years, that included not only the pandemic, not only the stresses that were put on them during the pandemic as frontline workers. We have a lot of people who work in healthcare, just sheer burnout, but also things like the murder of George Floyd, the increase in violence and, and the sort of negative rhetoric and political discourse around trans students, for example. So one of the things we did about a year ago is we rolled out trauma-informed counseling practices for all our advisors. General rule of thumb for us is 10 advisors has a team lead, someone who's been an advisor who's really, really good at it and helps them, you know, in their practice. And I think what our team leads had to spend a lot more time doing was just kind of the emotional care and feeding of someone because, you know, I remember this very specifically in the middle of the pandemic, you know, uh, an advisor who was working with nurses. So advisors tend to be oriented towards programs. So she was working with our nursing program. So these nurses, you know, they're nurses, uh, RNs who are working on their BSNs, their bachelors they would be coming home, having people, you know, dying on ventilators, watching people not being able to be with their loved ones, maybe holding up an iPad as someone was saying goodbye for the last time. And they didn't want to bring that home to their dinner table. they often put it on the laps of our advisors. So I think we saw the impact on our people as well and needing to sort of just do better care for our own folks. And it's one of the messages in Broken is that, In our scale systems of care, we often not only dehumanize the people we are supposed to be serving, but we often dehumanize the people who we employ within those systems.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the power of storytelling, which you talk about in the book, this need to know everyone's story or their multiple stories. I'm curious if that factors into this advisor relationship.
1: It's very important. And in fact, what we try to do is make sure we're giving advisors the time and the space to hear those stories and collect those stories. And for so many of our students, sometimes it's the first time anyone's asked. So we think that's ex- exceedingly powerful. And, and we do try to make time, you know. I contrast that with the average time an American physician goes before interrupting a patient who's talking. You want to take a guess? I read
0: your book. So I think I know six seconds. Yeah, it's, it's, right?
1: it's not in the book. It's okay out. maybe we were talking about this. So six seconds, right? And I describe in the book this amazing transformation at the University of Utah healthcare system with this gifted CEO, now retired, Loris Betts. And he, you know, he took a healthcare system, the largest in that whole state, uh, with many hospitals and clinics, et cetera, ranked among the lowest healthcare systems in the country in terms of patient happiness and satisfaction. And within, I think, six years, he literally made it the number one ranked healthcare system in America. And when I asked him what was the most critical thing, like what was the what's the takeaway here, and he goes, patients want to be seen. They just want their caregivers to know who they are as human beings. You have to listen to the stories. You have to collect the stories. Our systems don't want stories. Our systems want clean segmentation and labels because that's what you can process. That's efficient. But of course, the problem in that, as soon as you reduce someone to a segment, a label or a category, you lose important aspects of that story. So if you're a low income student from zip code X, that's one thing. If you're a low income student from zip code X and you're black, that's yet another thing. If you're low income from that zip code black and a veteran, yet another thing, and if you also happen to be trans, like now we're getting into the messy complexity of of human lives, right? But that's where people feel like now you get me, now you understand, now I matter. But on another level, What I also argue for is that leaders of organizations, particularly those who want to rethink those organizations, rethink their systems, they also have to be collectors of stories. You know, I think what happens, and I'm so guilty of this, I forever thought as a CEO, as the president of my university, I am the storyteller in chief, The kind of a cliche, right? Our job is to tell the story with enthusiasm, a way to inspire our people, that make everyone love us. But what Loris did when he started his process of reengineering the University of Utah healthcare system is he collected the stories that didn't fit the narrative. He looked for the stories that were counter stories to the narrative that was being told. Cause it's in the stories that don't fit our narratives. We have the richest opportunities for improvement come. And that's true for human beings as individuals. You know, if I really want to be a better person, I would sort of figure that out. So we got to be collectors of stories, both on an individual level. But as we design systems and think about leading organizations, we have to be collectors of stories as well. I have a quote I think
0: you're really going to like. It's from the head of people at D.E. Shaw, which is a pretty big private equity hedge fund in New York. She said humans are the most unstructured data there is. So what are your <laughs> metrics of success? Traditionally in higher ed, it's going to be graduation rates. How do you do on those traditional metrics? And as you've scaled, have graduation rates gone up or down?
1: We've held on our graduation rates pretty well until the pandemic. And as I said, we were struggling with persistence rates. We're an open admissions institution and our graduation rates are in the 40th percentile. Average graduation rates in the US are around 50, 55%. But for our population, it's often in single digits. And we have an emergency fund and you know our advisors don't have to ask for permission. If I'm talking to you as your advisor and you say, Oh God, like I'm I'm not gonna get my assignment done this week because my computer just broke, you know, that old computer I've been complaining about finally gave up the ghost, et cetera, et cetera. I can run down, grab a Chromebook, put it in a FedEx box and get it to you so you have it the next day. No questions asked. If you are talking about Worrying about feeding your kids. And then the choice is do I enroll for another semester or am I like we'll get you the grocery cards and get those out to you? And look at there are lots of other good institutions, like Georgia State, I think was a you know, really led the way in thinking about how the use of emergency aid could keep a student and get them to graduation. But to go back to your question, we we need to be better and better. And if you, by the way, if you take out the first semester and measure graduation rates from the second semester on, because we're open admissions, we do get people like, I'm gonna go back to college. I realize, oh, shoot, what was I thinking? <laughs> when you look at the second semester on, then those graduation rates shoot up into the 50th percentile. Because again, we we get a fair number of people and we never, it's hard for us to know, like we're trying to get better at knowing and being able to say to somebody, maybe not now, maybe not ready, maybe not realistic for you to enroll right now. And again, that's the beauty of being not for profit. One of the things that I'm asking our team to do is to take a look at other markers of success and can we capture them? You know, somebody who's, you know, maybe coming to us through an employer partnership. They've been enrolled without, they've maybe been a year under their belt and their boss says, wow, Jenny, you're really good. Like I can sort of see the impact of your studies. You know, you're showing this real talent facts. I want to promote you. And at that moment, you might say, I can't do both, big new job. I'm going to stop out for a while. That looks like failure on our end, in conventional measures, right? You don't count towards the situation, yet you're making a lot more money. Can we capture those markers of success as well? It was interesting. We were in this conversation where this came up and I was so challenging the team to think about what are the other markers of success? It's not as an alternative to graduation rates and persistence rates. We also look at student success rates, by the way. So how are they doing in their classes, their GPA and higher success rates in classes typically leads to better persistence. If you look at the eight-year graduation rate, we shoot up yet again because our students work, they're kids, so they're chipping away. So eight years is not an exceptional case for us. But we want to look at the other ways. And one of the things that have come up, and students talk about this, and I don't think there's any way we can capture, but we're really curious about what happens when someone finishes their degree. Are their kids more likely to then go to college? You know, the sort of two-generation kind of approach. When I ask our graduates, you know, why did you do this hard thing? They often say, I need to unlock an opportunity. I'm doing it because I need a post-secondary degree. I want to change careers. I hate working in X, Y, or Z. But right on the heels of that, they often say, I want my kids to know that their mom was a college graduate. They have a visceral sense of that. This is consistent and common.
0: We treasure what we measure. We say this all the time in education. At SNHU, you're working with Google to measure a pretty rich set of things. What are you trying to measure and what are you finding?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that we struggle with is that our legacy systems within higher education, our tech systems, are very siloed. You know, our SIS is one thing, it sits in a silo separate from our CRM, it it's separate from our financial network, it's separate from our learning management system, et cetera. And it's very hard to get the holistic view of a student that we would ideally want. So when I talk about really knowing somebody in all of their dimensions, what I'm talking about is a holistic understanding of the student. So we've been working with Google, investing in building a new underlying data infrastructure. That would allow us to build apps that more fluidly connect and talk to each other and allow us a much more comprehensive view of students, beginning with when you come to us initially in terms of what are the things you already know? What are your competencies and skills? You know a lot coming in, particularly as an adult learner. You know, if you were a lieutenant in the army and did three deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq, and you were in for 20 years, you developed a whole lot of skills. Can we better measure those and translate that into competencies and thus credits so that we can move you to the finish line faster? If you take a look at our adult learners and online, there are four things they want from us. There are four Cs, if you will. So one is I need a credential that unlocks an opportunity. That's an obvious one. I'm doing this with some sense of urgency. So completion time. in My education will be my third priority. Full-time job I have to attend to. And now I'm going to squeeze in this thing called an education. So can you give it to me in a very convenient way that fits in my life? But time is a source of inequity. So if I tell you, hey, Jen, this is great. We're going to work with you to get you that credential, that post-secondary credential. And you just have to come to campus every Wednesday at 5 p.m. to be in class. And that's going to move you along. There are huge swaths of the economy where I may not even know my schedule for next week. Why do I commit to Wednesdays at five? And it gets baked into all kinds of inadvertent ways. I had a parent take me up on something and I was like, oh my God, why did I not think about this? She had a, a son who was an undergraduate with us on the campus. He happened to be a black student who was from a low income background. I only say this because our housing policy for the most sought after housing on campus, which are the apartments, they hold four students. And the way our housing policy was working is that four students would come together and their average GP put them on the pecking order. And the whole idea was to give an incentive for higher grades. Like, hey, if you have higher grades, you get to get a better apartment, right? But she called said, my son has to work 35 hours a week. And by the way, he's enrolled in a really hard program, engineering. So yeah, his GPA is not as high. And And it's like, wait a minute, he doesn't have the same amount of time. So we are penalizing him in terms of our housing policy with no, no one designed it that way. But this is the stuff that we just becomes baked into the system. Structural inequity is what it is.
0: I want to talk about competency-based education just briefly. It didn't work the first time around. You have complete faith in it. Tell me why.
1: It's not clear to me that it didn't work. It's clear to me is that we had overheated claims for what it was going to do, including the ones I was making. So be a cult. <laughs> um, but I, I said, sort if of, you know the book, I was sort of, I, I woke the uh, Gardner Curve and I would use the analogy of MOOCs, for example. We said, you no, know, MOOCs are going to change the world. And then it became really fashionable to make fun of MOOCs. Like, oh yeah, so you know, where did those go? And now it's kind of a presence in the higher ed landscape. Is it changing higher ed? No is it an important part of the landscape? Increasingly, you know, edX was purchased for 820 million, perhaps overpaid or not. But right, like these things became big, viable parts of an ecosystem. And the ecosystem doesn't just implode, it evolves and it starts to reshape itself. So if I look at competency-based education, we made big exuberant claims for it. Everyone said, oh, yet another sort of a fad. But now if you take a look, CBE programs are springing up everywhere. I was at the CBEN conference, Conference council based education network conference last year, and there were 200 people there from institutions who were designing their first CBE programs. And they were there for the workshop on how do you create a CBE program. But that's 200 institutions that are now moving into that space on top of the ones that were already there. And look at Western governors as arguably the largest, depending on how you count, uh, with us, they're a CB pioneer. They're doing a remarkably good job and keeping prices low and highly ranked teacher education program, for example. So I think CB now is firmly planted as part of the landscape. But here's why I'm even more optimistic about what comes next. One is that I think we're going through this amazing change within the workforce where there's a rethinking of the degree as a necessary point of entry and employers are finally moving to skills-based or competency-based hiring. So what they're saying is, I no longer trust the degree to be a signal of what you can do or that you can do many things. In fact, if you ask CEOs, you know, Raise your hand if you've hired somebody from a good four-year school who doesn't write very well. Every hand will go off. And you can do that with quant, et cetera, et cetera. We're not the trustworthy signal that we once were. Instead, what they're saying is, I need to know what you can actually do with what you've learned and an increasing willingness to say, and it doesn't have to be rendered in the form of a degree. So now you have this new interest in micro-credentials, something less than a degree. 40% of all Google's higher ed searches today are for non-credit programs. Shorter term programs, and there's substantial research, including national research we commissioned, that tells us that a good part of the population say they want something that's shorter in length, more affordable, laser focused on skills and high demand jobs. Like that's what people want. Like I don't have the luxury of through two years or four years. So we acquired something called Kenzie Academy, which does six and nine month programs in UX design, software engineering, and cyber. And we can in nine months. Take somebody from eighteen thousand dollars a year to sixty-five thousand dollars a year, and we can do it in a way that doesn't break the bank for them. Degrees won't go away, but these will be part of the landscape. And I think CBE is really the underlying architecture that will be required.
0: I want to read something that you wrote. You said, "Post-pandemic, employees and students have changed behaviors, and this isn't a direct quote. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Behaviors, needs, and their expectations are different. Threats and opportunities are coming at them faster than ever." And you said, "The organization that." you've helped build over the past 20 years, probably isn't the organization that the next 20 years will demand. And you may well not be the person for that, which is two brave statements. What do you think that organization needs to look like? And how will you know when it's time to go?
1: On the second question, I hope I know that before my board does, because you don't want to be asked to leave. But let me start with the organization. So an acronym from the military, it's been often quoted now, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Certainly describes our, our world these days. And in a world like that, clarity of your values, clarity about mission, clarity about why you exist remains critically important. Certainty about how you achieve that mission That's dangerous because in a VUCA world, certainty is rigid and rigid makes fast. It's brittle. We have been more top down in terms of our decision making and how we've guided this organization than I think we should be going forward. Because now I've talked about rather than a kind of management team that sits at the top and look at our people, I think, generally speaking, have a high level of trust in my leadership and my team's leadership, et cetera. But the reality is they're closer to the work. And what I've been arguing for is let's move away from a centralized management team. Let's talk about a series of councils, if you will, that are deeper in the work, that bring more voices to the table so that we create a network effect. So that management team is actually simply the node that holds together a network of networks. And how do we tap into the smarts, creativity, and knowledge of those who are closest to the work? How do we give them more autonomy? I think our system has become too bureaucratic. I'm a big fan of David Graeber. I'm sure you know Graeber's work. I love the fact that this pairing, he's the anarchist economist who was sort of the intellectual godfather of the Occupy Movement, but the last book he wrote before he died called Bullshit Jobs. And he talks about not only the jobs that probably could disappear tomorrow, and no one would notice. And a lot of people, 60% of people describe their job that way. But how much of a job is actually about keeping the system happy and actually not about the work? And I think some of that has seeped into SNHU simply by dint of our sheer size and the complexity that goes with size. So we're on a sort of mission right now to to identify that and, and get it out. And I think some of that happens when you start to move away from this kind of hierarchical, traditional, and and higher ed is very hierarchical, despite our egalitarian rhetoric. How do you sort of break down those silos? How do you break down those hierarchies and move towards a kind of network of networks? That's our metaphor that I think we're moving to today. Higher education is an expert culture where status accrues to the smartest person in the room. Anybody who's sat through a meeting of academics has watched the attempt to show that someone's the smartest person in the room. The problem with that is expert culture is fall prey to certainty. And it's very hard for people in expert culture without encouraging someone to say, I don't know, or I need help. And in a VUCA world, there's so much we don't know. As a leader, I've had to learn to start with the questions.
0: The world is kind of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we're living in a world of shit, it seems.
1: I have such faith in this young people, and they're the ones who lined up for hours and hours on campuses across the country to insist on their right to shape their future. And I do think they're asking different questions. Honestly, I know you're like, you don't want me to just do the talk, but in talking about it, I get optimistic and excited. Like, it's like, no, this is great. Like, you know, and I think sometimes, maybe we have to be really broken to fix the things that are so deeply broken in our culture and our society. Maybe this in order to actually step back because this is not acceptable anymore. And I think I see that impatience and intolerance as I would hope in lots of young people, and they are the future. So what we've got to do is sort of give them the tools and get out of the way. And part of, you know, you asked this question about when will it be time for me to leave? It's like, Chris, like, you know, we need a next generation of leaders in higher education that don't look like me if we're really going to fix the system.
0: I like it. You're just you're going to be unapologetically optimistic, which I actually do think in this post-election moment is so warranted. All right, three rapid fire questions. What is your favorite book about learning?
1: My favorite book about learning? Oh, I can't answer that question. Jenny, that's like asking. I'm like Nick Hornsby in uh, High can, Fidelity. Like can you can't ask, ask me like my favorite record album. <laughs> I
0: can ask you any question I want. That's oh, the joy here.
1: All right. So I'm going to I'm going to answer your question, but it's a really old answer. I love Jonathan Kozl's Death at an Early Age. If you know Jonathan Kozl, that book was written, I think it was a young Harvard grad teaching at Roxbury School in Boston, Horace School, school of overwhelmingly African American students. And he talked about the way the system killed the creativity in children.
0: Okay, what's your favorite book not about learning?
1: Anacrine is a book that I just go back to again and again. I love that book deeply.
0: Okay, and what are you binge watching?
1: Oh, my God. Well, I just finished binge watching uh, Bad Sisters, which I think is one of the best things that's ever. And Dairy Girls. So those season of Dairy Girls, which dropped very recently.
0: Paul, thank you so much for your work, for your books and for sharing your time and thoughts with us.
1: Thank you so much, Jenny.
0: The first podcast we recorded for Learn It featured Michael Sorrell, president of Paul Quinn College. His advice in the dark days of the pandemic was lead with love. In the episode, he spoke about how to do that, specifically addressing ways to confront racism, expand opportunities, and provide safety for all students. It's fitting that we're ending the Learn It podcast with LeBlanc, whose messages echo so many of the same sentiments, not least of which, the importance of love. Paul wants big systems to create better ways to make students feel they matter, by seeing them, knowing them, investing in them, and giving them agency. He's found creative ways to do this at SNHU, and is remarkably honest about where he has succeeded and where there's so much more to be done. I love the idea that leaders need to be collectors of stories and that they need to engineer ways to understand students in the many messy dimensions in which they arrive. At a moment when it is cool to call a university degree passe and argue the future is just about short-term credentials and skills, Paul is refreshingly frank about the need for both. He has not given up on the promise that a degree can be a tool for social mobility. He just doesn't have one definition of what a degree is. Delivering on the social mobility promise requires risks of redesign and rethinking, which he's done. I admire Paul's track record, but more than that, I deeply admire his ability to keep learning. The combination of those two, of leading with love and of always learning, is a powerful one. As Paul said, the problem with expert culture is that it falls prey to certainty. Paul and Michael, and so many other people we've had on this podcast, hi, Henderson, Cebu Mieni, Shai Reshef, Cherner Ba, Lori Santos, Regina Hamidi, Caitlin Barron, they don't fall prey to certainty, but constantly question the systems in which they operate and themselves. EdTech founders, of course, don't always have this luxury. To get venture capitalists to part with their money, certainty of mission or ability to execute is probably necessary. But certainty of purpose and an ability to constantly question and learn are not mutually exclusive. If there is a set of leadership superpowers, love and learning are two. Combined and directed towards the unapologetic goals of equity and access in education, they are powerful and notable and laudable. Thanks for listening for the past two years, and I promise to let you know where this podcast lands next.